Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? It's going really well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing well. In this episode, we spoke with a journalist out of Ohio named Dave O'Brien. We met Dave a couple of years ago at CrimeCon, and he is really into the disappearance of Judy Martin. So when I say into, it's his passion case, Lance. And he is so well-researched that... Um... Really, I feel like we've been lucky lately. We've had a lot of guests on that have been so well-researched and and so thorough with their investigation, their independent investigation. He was really good to talk with and really shed some light on Judy Martin's disappearance for us. And Judy Martin's has been missing since May 24th, 1978 from Kent, Ohio. She was a student at Kent State at the time. She is white. She was 22, 5'4", 120 pounds. One of the most mysterious things about this disappearance is the the lack of evidence and the things she left behind. She disappeared, as David goes into, she disappeared 
just between a distance of maybe 100 or so yards as she was walking between dormitory buildings. That's right. It is perplexing. And if you have any information, please call the Ohio Attorney General's office at 330-672-3070. And also, we're going to put Dave's email address in the show notes if you'd like to send him a message. And if you want to read any of David's work on this disappearance, the links will be in the show notes. And Lance, on this date, June 18th, 1999, 73-year-old Ruth T. Doss went missing. She was supposed to meet two friends at a Denny's restaurant in the vicinity of West Indian School Road and West 51st Avenue in Phoenix, Arizona, but it is unclear if she ever met her friends. Ruth, at the time of her disappearance, was five foot. 8 inches, 105 pounds, with brown hair and blue eyes. Ruth wears glasses, and she has two metal implants, one in each knee and a surgical scar on each knee. She was wearing a purple blouse and blue or green pants, glasses, and she carried a gray purse with her. She would regularly call her son several times a day, but he has never heard from her since. Anyone with information should contact the Phoenix Police Department at 602-262-6141. And Lance, of course, on this date is always brought to us by Private Investigations for the Missing, the nonprofit that we are on the board of. Check it out at investigationsforthemissing.org and check out their social pages. Links in the show notes. Okay, thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoy the interview with Dave O'Brien. Welcome to the podcast, Dave O'Brien. Dave, how are you today? I'm doing all right. Thanks very much. Well, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us. Uh, I'm assuming you're very busy with your current occupation. Um, and uh, you you have a passion case. I, can we say that this is a passion case that we're going to be talking about today? I'd say, I'd say that's pretty fair. I'd, okay. say that's, I'd say that's very fair. Yeah. Okay. What do you do uh, for your for your day job? What's, your, what's a day in the life of David O'Brien? <laughs> well, I am a uh, I'm a reporter uh, for the Chronicle Telegram newspaper in Elyria, Ohio. It's just west of Cleveland, about an hour west of Cleveland. Um, for right now, I cover uh, I cover courts and county government, um, you know, countywide issues, uh, some some you know state issues uh, that that kind of you know have an effect on on local you know uh, on local folks. I mean, in my in my personal life, I'm I'm kind of a I'm kind of a true crime enthusiast. And and this this case that we're going to talk about is uh, is one of those that that I picked up sort of on a professional level. But then once I started to really dig into it, I said, I said, you know, I'm going to put some personal time into this as well and try to and try to gather as much information as I can and and see if, you know, if we can't you know warm up a cold case, you know, missing persons. We first met you a couple of years ago at CrimeCon. Was it 2017 or 2018? I've been to all three, so I think so. Would definitely would have been. Uh, I, were you guys in um, Indianapolis? Because I definitely, I know we met in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, definitely there as well. Okay, so that's cool. Um, well, lo- looking forward to seeing you again. But yeah, you approached us then and and started uh, speaking about this case about Judy Martin's. Yeah, yeah, and that was. Uh, that was something, you know, it, it, it's one of these things where I think, I think the more attention, um, you know, I, I absolutely fall on the side of the more attention we can give to cases like this, no matter how long they've been going on. And this one's been going on 42 years. Um, 
no matter how long they've been going on, there's there again, it's 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 that idea that somebody out there knows something, right? And and somebody might just have a small piece of the puzzle that fits in and you can you can either, you know, by process of elimination get rid of a of a of a suspect or get rid of a, a circumstance. Uh and and I just want more people to be aware of this one in particular. I mean, there's so many across the nation, as we know, what, you know, there's 250, 260,000, you know, unsolved, uh, unsolved homicides. For right now, we just don't, we don't even know if this is a homicide. Now, I have, I have a feeling that in all likelihood, it probably is. And the problem also becomes that there are no real good suspects. Uh, so this is, this is, you know, some people might consider this, Hey, kind of a, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to use a, you know, an unfair term, but like a kind of a loser case, like, well, there's no, there's no suspects, there's no DNA, there's nothing like that. But if we can bring more attention to it and have more people put eyes on this and put ears on it, maybe something shakes loose. Yeah. We are talking about Judy Martins, who has been missing since May 24th, 1978. So that is 42 years, uh, just past the anniversary, she went missing from Kent, Ohio. She would be 64 years old. Her birthday is July 15th, 1955. She was 22 years old, 5'4", 120 pounds. I got that info from the charlieproject.org. Her case is truly baffling. There's there's cases that are baffling, like we do more Murray, Brianna Maitland. This case is truly baffling. The ones that we've looked at... You know, typically the the two I just mentioned, it's it's sort of like um, young women going missing in a in a form of isolation. They they were alone at the time, even though there were people around, neighbors or whatever. But this is truly baffling. And, and there's some case. clues usually, yeah. and uh, and this one there re- there's really not m- many clues. I mean, I, I would say the only clue you can kind of point to is like what she left in her dorm, right. Uh, for a little bit of background, you know, Judy was about, you know, and, and for, for, for vital statistics sake, you know, about five foot four, 120 pounds, long brown hair, wore glasses, was a, a university student at Kent State University, um, had spent some time at Ohio University uh, down in Athens in southern Ohio. Feeling I got from the fam, from speaking with family members, um, her two, her two siblings are still alive. Steve and Nancy are still, uh, are still alive. Her parents have unfortunately, you know, passed by this time. But the feeling was that, that she might have gotten a little bit of home, a little bit homesick uh, and wanted to be a little closer to home. So she she came up from from Ohio University, which if any if anybody's been there is is really sort of a, a sort of an island of its own. Athens is is way out there in sort of southeast Ohio. So she decided to move a little bit closer to home. Home was Avon Lake, which again is a suburb of Cleveland in Lorain County, uh, just west of uh, just west of uh, Cleveland and then in a Cleveland suburb. So she comes up to Kent State. She is there through May 24th, 1978, leaves a party in her dorm room to head back to her residence hall where she's a resident advisor. So she lives alone, no roommates. Uh, she works under sort of a residence director. So she's one of those folks that, hey, if somebody needs to come and talk or she plans programming uh, for, for students to do, you know, they go out, they go on trips or they take, you know, they take time out to go, you know, throw the Frisbee around on, you know, on campus. That's the kind of thing that she did for work. She also worked at the, the, the Women's you know, Pregnancy Information Center on campus um, and did a couple other things, you know, in the counseling center just for either for credit or for pay. So she really wanted to get into, you know, into, into therapy or become a, become a counselor. 
Um, so she has a real deep concern for other people. I think I think that much is obvious from just those three facts alone. Mm-hmm. You know, she does she does a, a little bit of partying. I mean, depending on who you you ask, I think the the legitimate sources would say, you know, she doesn't party any more than a student would in the late 1970s. You know, on a on a relatively liberal campus where where yeah, a lot of people smoke weed and and students can go out and drink. She's of you know, I don't know when the when the change was in the in the legal age you know for drinking, but she's 22, so it wouldn't have mattered. She also doesn't like marijuana because it gives her headaches. That was what her, her sister said. And, and there's no evidence that she was into, into hard drugs. There's, there's rumors and innuendo, and I mean, not stuff that you want to go into. So there's not, there's not any like high risk lifestyle. And again, not, not to obviously not to victim blame because that's, you know, but she's, she's not involved with a bad crowd, if you will, or, or going out and, and doing things that might put her in danger of, of being arrested or, or, you know, or running into somebody, you know, that, you know, uh, you know, of a, of a, of a bad nature, she's not doing anything wrong. She's going to class. She's, she's got a job. She's, you know, socially aware. And she leaves this party about two 30 in the morning on May 24th, 1978. It's the upcoming Memorial day weekend. And she vanishes off the face of the earth. Where was she going when she left the party? Was she heading back to her dorm? And how far away was that? She was heading back to her dorm. She left the party from Dunbar Hall, going to Engelman Hall, where she was a resident advisor in Engelman Hall. Again, again, had, had a solo room. I mean, we're talking, you know, think about how long it takes you to walk the length of a football field. I mean, we're talking 100 yards, if, if that, you know, pretty close to that. It's across a... Uh, a road that crosses campus and then up a sidewalk between two dormitories. So there's lighting, there's people around, right? Okay. But there's a road and there's two dorms. So there's definitely people opportunity there, but yeah, it doesn't sound like necessarily like a dark pathway or alleyway or something like that, huh? It's a little, you know, I don't know what the lighting conditions were and I need to find somebody from Kent state university who, who worked there or went there in the seventies. And if there's anybody out there, um, you know, I'll give, uh, you know, I'll give uh, you know, some contact information uh, down the line that, that if you remember what the, the lighting was on the pathway between Dunbar and Engelman back in 1978, I'd love to see a map. I'd love to, to kind of understand like, was that a, uh, was that considered a safe walking path? Um, I walked it with another person, Around the same time in the morning, about two thirty in the morning, on a on a spring or summer day, a couple of years ago, um, probably about you know, I want to say five six years ago, and I didn't necessarily feel like in, incredibly safe, but but again, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a, I felt like there were a lot of lights around. You know, I'm a, I'm a two hundred fifty pound you know forty year old guy. You know, back then I was thirty five, but <laughs> you know what I mean. But I felt a little bit more safe than I might think. You know, somebody who's five, 420 pounds, you know, is walking alone, going back to their dorm. I mean, I don't have that experience. So I feel like, I feel like there's a portion of that pathway and the, and the campus geography has changed a little bit. Some of the dorms have come down, they've built some other ones, um, but nothing really over that path, which leads past um, Kent State Massacre Memorial, the May 4th Memorial, leads within, within earshot of that. You know, we don't, we don't know who was out there that night. She also crosses a parking lot. And we don't know if there was somebody sitting in that parking lot, if she saw, you know, waiting, you know, some, some kind of predator 
or if there's somebody that she saw something that she wasn't supposed to. I mean, that that's all conjecture at this point. Did she ever make it back to her dorm? Did she have any people witness her going into the building, like back into the building? She left her student ID and left her glasses in her dorm room. So there's there's a possibility if she had those at the party. And again, I'd love to talk to somebody who was at the party. You know, that would be real fantastic if somebody who remembers this case you know, remembers that night or remembers being at a, at a, a kind of a, you know, hey, we're going off on Memorial Day weekend for three days party. If there's somebody who remembers that, I'd love to hear from you, you know, because I and, and I've, I've, I've done some amateur sleuthing. And there, there are a few people on Facebook that I found based on names that I've received from other people who may have been there that night or may have lived in the dorm and known other people who were. So again, it's one of those things where you you know you try to reach out to different people and say and say okay if you weren't do you know who was so it would be helpful if you know if memories haven't changed terribly much in forty two years I'd love to be able to talk to some of those folks. This is also a situation where and I'll get I'll get into it a little bit more where Judy had plans. She was supposed to go on a trip with friends for the Memorial Day weekend. Uh, she never showed up, so they left without her. There were not a lot of people on campus at this moment, because a lot of them would, you know, would finish off, you know, exams or, or things like that and just, and just kind of scoot back home or they would commute back home or they were commuter students who just, who didn't live on campus. So campus might have been a little bit emptier than it normally is at this, at this kind of time. You know, it, it would be like, it would be like going on, you know, it being spring break and, and she's just an RA, you know, trying to finish up some work, you know, spend some time with friends, have a couple drinks. And then and then head back. Now, what happened when she went missing? How did uh, how did the missing persons report go down and everything like that? You can see that Judy has real long, straight brown hair, right? Brown eyes. Again, she's she's petite, five five four one, you know, one twenty. If if she's one twenty, one of the problems that some people have brought up is that the last time she was seen, she was wearing this this, and I may have sent you this photo as well, and you can find it online. Um, this big curly red wig, right? It's almost kind of like a clown wig, but it's, it's, it, it's a little more, it's a little more realistic. You know, she had, she had, you know, her hair tied up or put up underneath that at some point in the night. And there are photos of the last night that she was seen, you know, she takes that off or puts it back on that wig has never been found. Um, she's got, you know, kind of gaucho pants style jeans, a brown and, and yellow blouse, which might've been a little more like tan, a beige trench coat brown boots, large white imitation leather shoulder bag. Um, might have also had a smaller purse inside of that. She's reported missing two days later. Her residence director, who was also a good friend of hers, um, who is still alive, to my under, to my knowledge, said she went missing and we, we haven't heard from her for two days. She didn't show up when friends were going to go on a trip. Um, she didn't go back home to Avon Lake to pick up a car that she was going to be, you know, I guess my, again, my understanding, I might, I might be getting this a little mixed up. Judy was going to give her car to her younger sister and then get another car. And she also had a bicycle on campus. Bicycle was found. Her glasses were found. Her student ID was found. All of that was either in or around her dorm. So her residence director reports her missing, says, you know, she didn't, you know, uh, she didn't check in. You know, we, we had a meeting, something like that. She was wearing contact lenses at the time she disappeared. Her glass, so her glasses were back in the room. Okay. A lot of these dormitories also have sign-in logs. There's no evidence that anybody who, you know, who was sitting at the desk, you know, because a lot of times you'd have a desk attendant, right? Especially back then when you didn't have electronic 
keycard access, which is which is the norm on most campuses in the United States today. Nobody nobody signed her in, signed her out, saw her go into her dorm room. That makes me think that somewhere between those two residence halls is where she either decided, forget my life, I'm just going to take off, which she's perfectly legally entitled to do, or she gets grabbed. I think the latter, much more likely, because she had her father's credit card for emergencies. It was never used. She was known around amongst her friends for not having a whole heck of a lot of money to, to blow on, you know, on, on things, but she always went out in makeup and she wouldn't have disappeared with that without that. Her makeup was, was all in her dorm, you know, and there's no way that she would have left her glasses behind because contact lenses are great today. You know, I can wear them for six weeks and not, you know, and not take them out, you know, but back then, I mean, you're talking about hard contacts, you know, so those got to come out at the end of the night. So there's just, it's, a lot of people were suspicious when she didn't, you know, show up to to take on her responsibilities that that she was, you know, that she had taken on. And, um, you know, a, a counselor said he had not, he had not heard from her. Somebody she worked with, you know, uh, had not heard from her. Uh, the family started to get freaked out when they didn't hear from her. Um, and basically by, you know, and we have a we have a full fledged you know missing persons case, um, you know, two days later. And. And then in the next couple of days is when the police really ramp up their investigation, such as it is. That's another criticism is that university police didn't do as much as they should have. And, and again, there's there's some other just outrageous issues that come out about that down the line. And uh, was university police the only police that investigated this? Well, they uh, because it happened, uh, you know, whatever happened, happened and she disappeared from university property, Kent State University Police Department had the main part of the investigation, they called in the city police department, the Kent police department. Um, I've spoken with the retired police chief, you know, you know, uh, a guy by the name of Ron Heineking. And he said that he had officers available throughout that whole weekend, you know, and, and after Judy was, was reported missing, they went down to the, the banks of the Cuyahoga river, which, which runs through downtown Kent. They searched that they searched places, along the river that are that are kind of common hangouts, you know, for for high school, college students who maybe want to go back and, you know, and smoke weed and, you know, drink some beers and just hang out or, you know, make out spots, things like that. They checked all the sort of the usual suspects of places where bodies would get dumped around that time. Um, There's there's more than a few lakes, which are sort of the, you know, the water source system for for the nearby city of Akron, which might be a little bit more familiar to some people than than, say, Kent. But a lot of Akron's water sources are in the county where, in Portage County, where Kent is located. So they, they searched all around those. There's a couple parks that, uh, that Kent Police, the Portage County Sheriff's Office, Kent State University Police, even the Ohio National Guard came out. And as Kent has had a very tense relationship with the Ohio National Guard, given the events of May 4th, 1970, that was a big thing for the Guard to do, to come out and put up helicopters with infrared technology to search and kind of see like maybe Judy wandered off in a haze and, and collapsed somewhere. So we're going to search, you know, places out in the woods where we might see a body or we're going to search where there might be evidence of recent you know, disturbance of the undergrowth or of the, or of the soil. Sometimes you can determine that. I don't know what the technology quite was like back then. Uh, I know we have some of that now where you can kind of determine different soil densities and things like that. 
or if something's been moved, you know, real recently. So they, they did a lot of that. Psychics came forward and said, I know where she's buried. Give me a photo and a map of the county and I will point it out to you. And they found her immediately and case closed, right? There was, there was a really bizarre one where some guy who worked at the university came up to the police, you know, police department crying, saying, I know where she is. And here, give me a, give me the map and the, and the photo. And he, and he put his hand on the map and immediately just started to weep. You know, that, that might just be that he was having such an emotional reaction. Um, again, I'd love to know if that guy's still alive. I'm like, I'm not going to say his name, you know, cause I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to kind of further the, you know, the real obvious, um, you know, we, we take a real, you know, kind of, you know, close look at that and determine its, its uh, veracity. But, you know, there, there's, there's rumors that, that, you know, oh, somebody picked her up and she said she was hitchhiking to Mexico. So the cops are chasing, you know, chasing down rumors that she was picked up hitchhiking everywhere from here to Cincinnati. Uh, they called the Seattle Police Department because there was a young woman who, um, who died by suicide out there. And the physical description kind of vaguely, vaguely resembled Judy. That's in the file you know, that I have. They approached the FBI, said, hey, can you put her into the national you know, criminal information center database. They, they did these things. Um, and, and all of these reports that I, that I have copies of are, are dated, you know, this wasn't a daily occurrence where they're going out and saying, and saying, okay, we're going to talk to this person. And this was kind of like the halcyon days of hitchhiking too. Right. So the rumor is that, oh, well, she decided to just give up everything and, and, and hitchhike to Mexico. And there was a woman who showed up at a garage sale who said, I'm hitchhiking to Mexico. And a couple people thought she might've looked like Judy. Well, they ended up finding this girl, and it turns out that they found her at the passport office where she was getting a passport so that she could cross into Mexico. <laughs> so, so that lead went cold. Police were getting a lot of calls from the public, which is which is fantastic for this kind of for this kind of situation in that era of guys saying, "Yeah, I picked up this female hitchhiker." None of those panned out. One of the hitchhikers had the wrong color eyes. One had the wrong color hair. was a was a blonde, and Judy was a was very obvious brunette. Um, so unless you did a really quick dye job on her on her hair, you have to take a lot of these things with a grain of salt. So, so that's that's kind of the situation we run into. There's a lot of false leads. So a lot of false sightings. Um, what about uh, she had a boyfriend at the time, right? Yeah, this guy. It's they were not together at this point. Um, you know, again, I, 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 you know, he's he's a he's a sort of a person of interest, but he did pass a polygraph. He just doesn't have a good alibi for that night when she disappeared. He said he was home, probably alone, but he aces a polygraph, you know, which was given by the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, which is, which is sort of like the, 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 you know, the investigative arm of the attorney general's office. So we, again, we have another agency that's brought in to kind of help out in the investigation. Right. So, so he, was kind of a guy that they said was, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how best to put this. Um, it was quoted to me that he was a real bad news boyfriend. Um, they had been together at least until, you know, mid to late April, possibly early March of that year when things fell apart. He had had some issues, including, I believe he shot himself in the foot with one of his many guns, uh, <laughs> which is, which is a, a unique little detail that, might not mean anything. Um, he also ends up down the line getting into a really bad motorcycle crash 
um, and having some serious health problems as a result of that. Also, possibly some serious memory problems as a result of that. So whether or not he would have a good memory is, is questionable at this point. I mean, he would also be about, you know, you know, 65, 66 years old at this time. But at the time he was originally questioned, uh, he still didn't have an alibi. And I imagine that would have been a week or less after Judy went missing. Correct. Yeah, the, 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 the police were real quick to go to go question him. Um, again, it's one of those things where the, you want to talk to the people closest to the person who is missing or murdered. And, and they went and talked to him almost immediately. He was forthcoming, you know, by, by the, by the facts of the, the reports that I have, you know, of, of police sitting in a, in a room with him and asking him questions. Um, he was, he was rather forthcoming down the line. They did, uh, they did go and, you know, and get permission from him to search the two vehicles that he had access to, um, which I think was a 1971 Grand Prix. Grand Prix, and uh, I think it was a late 60s Buick station wagon, um, which either didn't have plates or police didn't get the plates. It's not mentioned in the report. He had guns. I mean, a lot of people do, and they don't commit crimes. Some people have a lot of guns, and they do commit crimes. It, it, it doesn't really mean anything to, to the situation, but he was rumored to have been involved with a bad crowd, been involved with drugs. Um, he is where some of these, some of these rumors kind of swirl that it might've been a really, you know, solidly domestic, you know, domestic kind of thing that happened, but whether he had the ability to, to hide a body or the intelligence to hide a body for 42 years, you know, I'm, I'm not comfortable saying that, you know, that he's a, he's a prime suspect. And again, whether or not he, he remembers anything from that time is just, is just kind of a toss up. What about her family life? Did she have a close-knit family, uh, brothers, sisters, close relationship with the parents? She had a brother, brother Steve, uh, sister Nancy. Nancy and Judy were incredibly close. I don't, have, I, don't have, I don't have biological siblings. I have step-siblings, so I can only imagine for some people saying, oh, well, you know, I don't always get along with my sister. But Nancy said that when she would have problems, she would, she would go talk to Judy. And Judy convinced her to, you know, get back to beauty school, you know, to go and, and get some sort of certificate, to get a, to get a job, to get a car, you know, do all these kinds of things. The two sisters were just, I mean, you know, peas in a pod and they, and they missed each other terribly when they were away from each other. Judy would call home constantly. Her parents were by every account that I found wonderful, caring, didn't, you know, you know, weren't, weren't violent. Judy and, and well, I guess Nancy might, not always get along with, with her parents, maybe, you know, and Judy was a little bit more of a calming influence. Um, from, from what I've gathered, you know, her brother, Steve was, was real heavily, you know, kind of, kind of doing his own amateur sleuthing parents, you know, were doing a lot of, you know, a lot of amateur sleuthing, you know, pushing the university real hard on, on what happened and, um, you know, and, and, and what they, what kind of things they were doing to investigate, uh, investigate this. And, and sadly, Arthur Martins died of cancer at, at age 57. And uh, Dolores Martin died at age 71, both uh, without closure uh, in their in their daughter's case. Nancy told me that Judy didn't show up to her own sister's wedding, you know, because it happened after she disappeared. You know, she said she never would have missed that when Arthur Martins was dying of cancer. No, Judy didn't didn't show up still missing when Judy's you know, only niece and nephew were born or when Nancy's grandchildren were born, not a word from Judy, you know, and that's, and that's completely out of her character. Has there been any looking into as far as um, 
active serial killers that were operating at the time? Good question. The theory around Kent for the longest time was that Ted Bundy had something to do with this. Ted Bundy was in jail in Florida at this time because he had been arrested in 1978, February 1978, trying to cross into Alabama by a, you know, by a Florida police officer. And, uh, and so he was, he was in jail. There was, you know, she fits the physical description. Judy very closely fits the physical description. Of course, there are a lot of brunettes, a lot of, you know, short, you know, brunettes with brown eyes, you know, with hair parted in the middle. If that was even, you know, Ted Bundy's, you know, kind of kind of perfect victim, if you will. Um, a lot of people talk about that. He didn't have anything to do with it. He was locked up in Florida. How many states away? We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Well, also, I was just thinking about the serial killer angle. Usually a serial killer will leave the victim. I mean, for the most part, victims kind of follow in the aftermath of a serial killer. And then maybe you'll find out after the the arrest of the serial killer uh, that there are more bodies that that he or she hid or buried. And um, but typically, especially with the case of Bundy, I mean, he would just massacre uh you know, like a sorority house, and he's not worrying about hiding the bodies. And typically, there's something left. Typically, yeah. there's something left as maybe a calling card or an accident or something. But she just vanished. And you're you're pretty certain it was between the the party and her dorm. So on that on that walk, I would think I would think it would it would have it would have had to have been you know. And there are two other you know there are two other suspected serial killers who were operating sort of in the area at that time. Unfortunately, one of them was locked up for a, a, a rape, for a sexual assault that he had done. Um, he has since been charged with additional, you know, cold case murders uh, that have been investigated. One, I think, the, I think the oldest one is possibly from 1971 to 1975. His name is Gus Safaris. His parents owned a restaurant in Akron, again, not too far away from Kent. But Safaris is locked up for a rape. Um, he's only been charged with these, with you know, with these, with these crimes that the police uh, have linked to him. And I've been following that case really closely. But I looked at the timeline of when he would have been locked up 
you know, for a, for an assault that he committed in the early seventies, he doesn't fit. There's another gentleman and, um, I don't know how comfortable I am with using his name, but he's locked up for, for kidnapping and in which the body has never been found of a woman, uh, that he took from, from the, the Connecticut, Massachusetts area, uh, and apparently dumped off, you know, strangled and dumped off the side of it, of an, inter, of interstate 89 in Vermont. And he was living in Kent around this time under a different name, under an alias. A lot of people who like, and, and, and I'll just, I, and I'll use the name and you guys can, can bleep it out if you want, but um, his name is William John Posey Jr. And he was living in Kent under the fake name of Jim Scorpione, which well, is basically yeah. Scorpion with an E on the end of it. It's ridiculous. I, yeah, I think we're, I think we're good with the name because that's, um, his name is out there a lot with the case. Yeah. And I, and you know, and he's, and he, he admitted, uh, later on to strangling and, uh, and dumping Iris Brown, you know, off the side of 80, uh, I 89 in Vermont, uh, in March, 1976. Uh, he finally admitted to that while he was, you know, very ill health in North Carol in a North Carolina, you know, federal prison, but just a guy who uses aliases like he did, like John, John or Jim Scorpione, um, John Scorpion, which sounds like, you know, like a post-Vietnam, you know, guy who, who comes back and avenges his family. You know, it's just kind of this really, like strangely macho name. Um, he also might have gone by the name Jim Santini. He had an apartment blocks from the university uh, campus. It would not have been very difficult if he has anything to do with this at all. And, and the family considered a couple of years ago just writing him a letter and saying, hey, we heard you're, you're not doing well. Please tell us anything you know. You were living in Kent at the time. I've thought about writing the guy myself and just saying, hey, you were in Kent around that time. Did you hang out with any with any bad dudes, you know, who might have been, you know, who might have done this or just establishing a relationship? The FBI said that probably wasn't a good idea. You know, he's, he's and also he's probably not going to write back. Well, what does the FBI know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you should try it. That was the advice that was given. And you know what? I mean, what? it, it can't really hurt, right? I'm not going to I'm not going to blitz him with hate mail. You know, I don't really want to, you know, that's that's not really helping anything at the at this case, you know, or make direct accusations. Uh, I doubt he's listening to the podcast in prison. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but but sometimes if you reach out to people, you know, in the right way, sometimes they write you back, you know. Um, but I also think that, that it doesn't, you know, I mean, Iris Brown and Judy Martins could have been sisters. If you look at the two pictures side by side, I hate side by side comparisons of suspects. But I will put two people who are missing or disappeared side by side and look and see if it makes any sense, you know, that maybe the same person did this. And he has he has links to both because he was living in Kent and and then he actually admitted to the other one. A lot of people really like him for this. A lot of people really think that he was, you know, that he's he's got some hand in it. I don't I can't say where he was. I don't know what his car looked like at the time. I don't know exactly where he was living. You know, I just kind of know the general, you know, it was, it was not far from campus. Um, is this a guy who's out at 2.30 in the morning trying to pick up lone co-eds and say, hey, you need a ride back? And even if she did need a ride, she's halfway to her dorm. So she doesn't need a ride to her dorm, which, again, makes me think somebody pulled up, grabbed her, was hiding in the bushes, grabbed her, got her in a car. And you could be on two different interstate highways within 15 minutes of leaving of leaving the campus 
but you said it's um a like a pathway a ro- like you have to walk down a road a little bit and then you walk through a parking lot i'll send a, you know I'll, i can send you a, a current map you know which is which is really the only one i have and i have a map from 1970 that'd be great which would be which which might be really helpful but basically you have to you know okay imagine this is um see which one's on the on the right side <laughs> so so if this is judy's dorm and this is the dorm where she's leaving right there is a road almost straight in the middle of those two. Just after you leave Dunbar, you have to cross that street and you come into a smaller kind of kind of parking, you know, access area where there's another dormitory just sort of right there. So she would have walked sort of around this dorm and then there's a parking lot right here. So she would have walked through this parking lot and then up to her dorm, which is here. I mean, I mean, that distance is 100, 100 yards. I mean, so she crosses the street, scoots along the side of a building through a small, you know, through, through kind of a smaller parking area, larger parking area, and then up a path back to her dorm, which, which front and back has access. Engelman Hall has access, uh, you know, on, on both sides. I've been in that, I've been in that dorm building. You know, it's, it's one of the older ones on campus from what I understand. Um, I don't know when it, I, it's easy to find out when it was built because the university has that up on their website, but she's not far from home. So she's not going to accept the ride from somebody just going straight to her dormitory. Now, was it somebody that she knew? And they said, hey, we got this other party. Well, she's just left the party. Why would she go to another party? You know, when she said, hey, I got to get home because I got to get packed for, you know, for the, for this trip that I'm taking. You know, I got to get some sleep. You know, a resident might need me. And that kind of thing. So I, you know, that lens, that, that tends to make me think that she was just flat out grabbed by somebody who had nefarious intent. Yeah, I I think the parking lot seems like a better spot to grab someone than than like someone looking for a hitchhiker, someone who's not hitchhiking. You know what I mean? Like right. like pulling over on the road and jumping out uh, is a little that, that sounds unlikely. It sounds more likely if she was abducted by someone. It was someone sitting in that in their car in that parking lot or hiding. You know hiding between cars or underneath a car. And there is, there is kind of a little sort of shaded, you know, tree area, just a little slightly, you know, slightly to the West of that lot, which again, you know, if, if I were, if I were thinking like a bad guy might not be a bad place to hide, you know, I don't know what the shrubbery looked like. Again, if you know anybody who worked in, you know, facilities maintenance or, or grounds maintenance, who was at Kent state at the time, you know, or any students, you know, anybody who's listening to this or watching this, please, you know, I'll give, I'll give, uh, you know, an email address that you can send me stuff to, um, you know, or if you want to reach out, I'm, I, I'm eminently Googleable, Googleable, <laughs> you know, you can, you can find out my, uh, my contact information and my, uh, in my place of employment. And, and she's got to have walked that path hundreds of times over a couple of years at, at, at the university. She's got to have walked that, you know, daily. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if she walked it daily and just, and just this one time at some point, you know, from a door that you can almost see the place that you're going. She's just swept off off the map. Were there any uh, accounts of suspicious people in the area before she went missing or after she went missing? You know, not that I'm aware of. Um, that might be a deeper dive that, uh, you know, that actually might be a good thing for me to, you know, to consider looking into, you know, in, in the Kent State file. And, and again, here's, here's one of the frustrating things. Kent State... University has a records retention policy. For those who don't know what a records retention policy is, it says that you have to keep certain records for a certain amount of time 
and then after that time, you are either beholden to get rid of them, you know, if they contain personal private information like social security numbers and things and things of that nature, um, you know, tax ID numbers. At some point, fortunately, after they had given a copy to the Martins family, Kent State University Police threw the entire file in the trash. How long after? It was some years. I want to say I want to say it was about 25 years. It would have been in the early 2000s where where the Martins family said, "Hey, can we can we get an update? Can we get a copy of this file?" I said, "Fine." And then very shortly after that, you know, the university police department said, "Hey, either we need the room where there's no evidence of a crime that has even occurred here. Judy was 22 years old. She could have just taken off on her own as as you're allowed to do if you're an adult." disappear and, and change your name. And, you know, I think that's less likely because again, you know, she never used, she, she didn't take money with her. She never used her dad's credit card. She wasn't dressed for hitchhiking for a road trip or for deciding to go to Canada, uh, for deciding to go to Mexico on a whim. And she already had a trip planned with, and the trip was within the United States. That's, that's one thing that I do know is that that was in the States. Cause I mean, you're not going to get away to, you know, you know, for, for three days to, you know, Puerto Rico. You know, it's it, it takes a little bit longer and you, you want to take in more of, you know, the experience than that. So the case file exists just with the family now? Family. I have a copy. Um, and you have several, a copy. Yeah. Several other amateur sleuths that uh, that I've been, you know, that I've brought, I've sort of read into the case, have copies. Uh, the Avon Lake Police Department has a file, but I think it's only a file that, that they have from their side of the investigation because... The family obviously wanted to deal with local police as well, you know, just in case that it was it was some there was some sort of connection to her hometown. Um, so I have to uh, I have to work uh, work a little bit with Avon Lake Police Department to get uh, to get my hands on what's what's publicly available in that in that record. I have uh, I have another amateur sleuth who's working working with me who is who has been up there and and gotten her hands on on some of those things. The other problem is that's all paper. There is no physical evidence. There's no dropped shoe. The wig, the clothing Judy was wearing the night she disappeared has never been found. Um, and by this point, you know, if it were out in, in the woods somewhere, has probably mostly rotted away, uh, except for maybe, you know, the metal buttons or studs on a pair of jeans. Um, now, now, that wig, to my understanding, again, was, uh, you know, is, is fake, right? It's so it's, um, you know, it's, it's a fiber wig. It's not an actual human hair wig. So whether or not that would kind of, you know, disperse with, you know, in the sands of time uh, is another question, but the, the the big purse she's holding is is never been found, and it's just it's, it's it's aggravating because there is no physical evidence. Judy had never been arrested, so her fingerprints are not on file anywhere, and you'd have to go and dig up something that she actually touched and that you could prove that she touched in order to find her fingerprints. But then again, you don't have a body to compare them to, so it would have to be something personal and private that only she touched. The family's DNA is on file, you know, with all the major, you know, missing persons databases. The Ohio Attorney General's Office, uh, you know, Bureau of Criminal Investigation, you know, is, is is aware of the case. It's listed, I believe, on their website, which is a, which is a relatively comprehensive website of missing persons and, uh, and unidentified, you know, murdered persons in the state of Ohio. The Kent Police Department would be a great place if anybody thinks that the crime was committed within the city. The Kent State University Police Department. Um, there's an investigator there by the name of Chris Jenkins, um, who is who is responsible. If any new leads come in, he can be reached there. It's one of those things where just tips come in. You know, if if sightings are made, they'll continue to follow up on it. But 
there really is, you know, and, and I understand it from the police point of view to an extent, there's no evidence that a crime was committed, but I don't think, and I, I think a lot of people would agree, you don't throw away the case file when that's all you've got. I still don't understand why the um, campus police were, were like, why that's the hub of the case file anyway. I mean, I imagine there's some, there's got to be some case files in, in some of these other uh, departments, right? In, in different uh, agencies? I would think, yeah, I would think again, you know, that, that buried somewhere in their, in their archives is probably, is probably a file with any reports or any, anything, you know, not every time that a police officer is called out, does he or she generate a report? That's the unfortunate part of things. Sometimes you talk to a source, you talk to a confidential informant, uh, somebody flags you down on the street and says, Hey, can you take care of this thing? Or, Hey, I heard this thing. Now, I personally believe, you know, from a public records standpoint, from a first, you know, First Amendment standpoint, you know, holding the government to account, all of that should be written down. But we don't know how fast and loose they were playing at the time. There's a lot of the investigators on this case originally, or patrol who, guys who were patrolmen at the time who worked their way up the ranks, who were still alive. One of the, you know, police dispatcher from a from a former, you know, from a from a police department right next door to Kent ended up becoming the police chief there. I need to bring him this report that he's mentioned in 42 years later and ask him if he remembers. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of legwork that still needs done on this case. I've had Kent State University students reach out to me and say, hey, we heard this on, you know, uh, on, on the Ohio Mysteries podcast. Um, that's, that's kind of a regional uh, podcast that we have up here uh, done by, by a former journalist from the Akron Beacon Journal, um, Paul, uh, Paul Schlees. And uh, there's a lot of people who have said, I stumbled across this on, on Reddit, on Charlie Project, you know, on the attorney general's website. You know, what can I do? You know, ask me questions. Some of them have really great questions. That's, the, that's sort of my idea behind the crowdsourcing of some of this, is that there are things that even I don't think about. You know, there's a lot of things that I don't think about. And, and talking to you guys has brought up, you know, has brought up more stuff as well. Tell us about this uh, sex worker who uh, ended up using Judy's birth date. This is the scene that, that comes straight out of a horror movie about a missing child, right? August 1983, Cleveland's police department arrests a woman who bears an absolutely uncanny resemblance to Judy and gives Judy's birth date, July 15th, 1955, as her own. Her name has variously been reported as possibly Sandra Lopez or Donna Lopez, but she gives police the name Judy Martinez. This rings some bells. This, the, the antenna really go up and, and many other you know, metaphors and similes as well. This is a rough part because the Martins family, Steve Martins, Arthur and Dolores, all go down to Cleveland to booking to take a look at this woman and see if it's Judy, if she turned to sex work. Nancy told me that her mother thought that the woman was Judy. Dolores thought it was Judy. Arthur Martins took one look at the woman and said, this is not my daughter. So now you have parents who disagree on whether or not this is Judy, right? Well, Steve told me on the phone from, from Florida where he now lives, uh, Judy was petite and had tiny hands. This sex worker, and this is a direct quote from Steve Martins, had huge hands. What does that mean? Not necessarily anything. 
Um, if, if you have any experience in, in writing about some heroin addicts and some crack cocaine addicts, when they, uh, you know, or, or just, you know, you know, kind of, um, kind of, you know, mainline, you know, cocaine addicts, when their veins get bad, or if they have a pre-existing heart problem, your hands can swell. Okay. So maybe this lady had been doing a bunch of drugs and her hands were swollen from that. Steve Martins doesn't think it's her. Later on, police get a court-ordered dental exam of this Judy Martinez. She still has her wisdom teeth. Judy had had her wisdom teeth yanked years before. The absolute creepiest part, though, is when the family talks to this lady and asks her, are you Judy Martins? This lady just takes one look at them and goes, Judy Martins is better off dead. What? It's kind of a, just a mean thing to say, I think, to parents. Like it, it was almost like based on what she, what that sex worker thought of the parents. I feel like it's just a rotten thing to say. Did she sure. know about Judy Martin's disappearance, or is this just coincidental? Good question. We don't know. And again, it would take diving into Cleveland Police Department arrest records for August 1978, which may or may not still be available to find even fingerprints. But then again, we don't have Judy's fingerprints to, to match this lady. The dental exam didn't match. That's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, you, you know, I mean, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to still, if, you know, if she's, if she's still alive, talk to this lady and ask her why she said it. If she remembers being arrested that night, if she remembers how the family was, was feeling, how they were acting or, or what they were doing. I mean, I have to, I have to imagine this was a very emotional situation for the Martins family, and, and understandably so. So they may have approached it saying, where's my daughter, where's my daughter, where's my daughter, are you my daughter, are you my daughter? And it's possible that there was just a, a you know, conflicting attitudes or, you know, conflicting personality, you know, situation there. Um, maybe this, you know, this sex worker, you know, didn't want to have anything to do with them and just wanted to, you know, get a court date and, and you know, and be let go or, or head off to the jail. Um, it's just a creepy little footnote to, to a certain extent, because again, the dental didn't match and we can't match, you know, fingerprints and DNA wasn't being done back then. It reminds me of the documentary, the imposter where, uh, there was a, a situation like this where someone claimed to be this family's missing son and they actually believed him, uh, yeah. which is mind boggling, even though he had different color eyes and things like that. Um, but uh, w what I also found was really, really weird about this was they did a, a handwriting analysis and found that it was a 95% match. Handwriting was real close. Now, again, that, you know, depending on who you ask is, is, is a potentially a, you know, a potentially hazardous mix of art and science, you know, and, and handwriting, as we've seen in the Zodiac case, even the experts on the Zodiac case didn't agree, you know, whether certain samples of handwriting matched Some people are ambidextrous, you know, and, and some people are really, really ambidextrous and can sign their name with both hands, you know, without, without breaking a sweat or differently. Um, it's a very, you know, that's again, a very, you know, something that it would be great to have a handwriting expert be, be able to go back and read, you know, some of the, the letters, the cards that, that Judy sent to her sister. I mean, if you don't care about your sister, you're not going to send her a card on her birthday, you know, on, you know, I don't know if there's an international sister's day, you know, but on, you know, on holidays, 
you're not going to do that. And there have been no cards. There's been no correspondence. You know, the, you know, Nancy and Steve haven't heard from their from their sister for 42 years. The uh, incident with the sex worker pretty much uh, shut down the investigation, or that was one of the last things that happened in the investigation. That's one of the last things that's even in the in the the file that I still have. It's one of the very last reports. Yeah, report number seventy eight dash four four five six seven. Date of report August twenty second, nineteen eighty three. On the seventeenth, a couple of days before, you know, the Avon Lake Police Department, Kent State University Police Department, got a report from Cleveland PD that this is possible. This woman, this you know, the sex worker, you know, again went by various you know various different names. The other part is that somebody, the, the daughter of one of the matrons at the Cleveland House of Corrections, the, you know, the Cleveland City Jail, um, I got into high school with Judy, you know, so so thought that, that it might have been somebody. So there were a couple people who were just in, in Judy's orbit who thought that this lady was absolutely her. You know, there were rumors that she was working as a, as a sex worker, you know, in some of the east side Cleveland bars. Um, none of those ever panned out. And Steve Martins and Arthur and Dolores drove around. Eastern half of Cleveland, going to some of these bars, asking questions, never saw anybody that, that, that resembled Judy, even though a couple people who knew of the case or there was even a, a brother-in-law of a family friend who went out there because he swore that he was drinking out at the bar one night, which that's that's clue number one that maybe you don't take this report entirely seriously. But he said he said he and a bunch of his buddies we're out at the bar and in walks this woman who's very obviously, you know, walking the street. And, and they said, holy crap, that looks like Judy. It looks like Judy Martins. Remember that gal from our high school who, you know, who disappeared down at Kent State? You know, and these rumors caused a lot of, you know, a lot of heartache for the Martins family. I mean, they were, they were very upset. And they, and they basically said, look, Judy wouldn't have, you know, skipped out on a, on a, on a, a potential career in counseling to go do sex work in Cleveland. And, and never contact us ever again, or never get arrested and say, call my mom and dad and let them know that, that I'm okay. Truth sometimes being stranger than fiction. I mean, who's, what, what novelist is going to write that? You know, that's just, that's, I, I, I don't want to entirely discount it. Like she didn't know anything, but at the same time, maybe she picked up an old copy of a newspaper and saw that this girl was missing and said, I look like her. I'm going to start using her name. You know, Judy's, Judy's birth date, I'm sure, was readily available, you know, on any number of, of flyers, you know, missing persons flyers. So she says she takes on the, you know, she takes on the alias of somebody who's who's gone missing, you know, whether or not that's a great idea, because then you're going to have all this police attention, you know, when you get arrested. So you change it a little bit, but you keep the birthday. You know, is that is that one of those things that somebody might have done around that time when they were when they were doing sex work, you know? It's just it's 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 an absolutely intriguing and, and really kind of horrifying, you know, you know, footnote, possible red herring, you know, possibly just this is a person who is used to being on the street and trying to scam the police or, or you know, hold up the police, you know, investigating, you know, what they were doing out there or trying to get out of, you know, from under some charges. And I mean, I, I mean, you know, solicitation of, uh, you know, of prostitution as they, you know. In, in Ohio is a misdemeanor. I mean, it's not a, it's not a felony crime. You're usually back out on the street, back to your home, you know, home base within a couple hours. I also misspoke a little bit when I was talking about serial killers, uh, leaving the body or, or, uh, typically leaving something. Um, 
I wasn't specifically talking about Posey because I, as I'm referencing this case, he actually coincidentally was convicted of kidnapping Iris Brown, whose body was never found. He, he admitted to killing her, but they still haven't found her body. So I guess, uh, I guess I might bump him up my suspect list a little bit more. He knows how to hide bodies. There's, there's a lot of things to like, you know, if, you know, to, to use the term about, you know, liking a suspect just as you, you know, you think they're good for it. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying I like this guy. He's a monster, you know? <laughs> um, and I think we can all agree on that, but, but Posey, you know, has experience like exactly like you said, Lance, you know, he knows how to get rid of a body. Strangulation doesn't require a big old bloody knife. You know, it doesn't require you to fire a gun. It just requires the strength of your hands and as as long as it takes to for that victim to lose consciousness. You know, um, it's 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 insanely personal, you know. It's it because you're you're looking at this person while you do it. Uh, I don't know how tall Posey is, I don't know how big he was at the time. I know sort of vaguely what he looks like from from future, you know, from later mugshots. I don't think it would have been real difficult for him to, to take on a, a five foot, 420 pound young woman when she's walking home, you know, just kind of wanting to go to bed or, or get some stuff packed. I don't see it as being real difficult for him to, to, to be a suspect in this. Um, his name has been out there for a long time. I've hesitated to use it in writing, I think, because it would take more sources and more digging and more talking to experts, or people who are more familiar with his you know, with his crimes or his alleged crimes to really kind of generate, you know, a very amateur psychological profile on the guy. Iris Brown. This is crazy. I, I honestly hadn't looked in. I saw the uh, I saw his name connected with the case and but I hadn't looked into Iris Brown. Uh, she she's been missing since March 15th, uh, 1976 from Burlington, Vermont. But right. she looks like she could be Judy Martin's sister. Her, Absolutely. She's five foot four, 127 pounds, brunette. Uh, she was 27 at the time, so I mean, you're talking just a five year difference. But she looks like she's, she looks like she could be 18. She looks like she could be 18 to 24. Uh, she just matches the description so well. The the two of them, I, you're you're absolutely right, Lance. It's like you put the you put the the pictures of the two young women side by side. I mean, that not only is you know exactly what Ted Bundy would have you know would have been interested in, you know, although he killed, you know, many different women of many different backgrounds and he also killed children, uh, you know, uh, teenagers, but he was handsome. I don't, yeah, that's, that's a whole other rabbit hole. I don't even want to travel that, you know, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's one of those things. And, and I mean, I mean, Posey, I don't even know if he was a looker, the guy I mentioned before the, the, the alleged serial killer, Gustav Ferris was not a looker, but he was a charmer though. Again, he has nothing to do with this case because he was he was already in prison for another crime um, that happened in the area, um, and he did and he did much of his many of his things you know kind of years before Judy ever disappeared. A lot of times, you know, I've been told by bosses or by you know coworkers, go with your gut. You know, if you think somebody's lying or you think something is wrong, go with your gut. Um, I mean, this isn't much of a gut feeling, but it's got to be either somebody that Judy trusted and knew who lured her away. Or it's somebody who who did a blitz style attack, a la Ted Bundy, you know, and said, "Hey, can you help me? You know, can you hold this flashlight while I change my tire?" And then whacks her over the head and throws her in a trunk, and and she's gone. Family is is convinced that Judy's dead. They have not heard from her for forty two years. 
and they are they are very convinced that she is she is long dead. I tend to agree with that by virtue of no phone calls, no e- you know not that there were it was email back then you know publicly used, no letters, you know no emails, no blood stains, no blood spots, no no evidence of an assault, no evidence of a kidnapping, just evidence of absence. You know, there's, there's no, there, there just, she just disappeared. None of her clothing was ever found. She left important things that were important to her were left behind in her dorm room, glasses, student ID. I really need to talk to the people who last saw her that night to her close friends. If there's any of you, you know, who were at Kent state at that time and knew Judy, well, um, I'll give, you know, I'll give you guys my, you know, my work email. You have my personal email, which I don't really want to give out on, you know, publicly, um, but I'll give you my work email to, to post and, and I can be found by calling the Chronicle Telegram in Elyria, you know, Elyria, Ohio. If you knew Judy, if you knew anybody who knew her, you know, if you were with her that night, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to help the Martins family really, you know, get justice. And I'm not, I'm not going to talk about closure because when, when people die, they all, you know, we all grieve differently. I don't know that I necessarily believe in closure potentially as a goal, but whether it actually exists or not. I think there's way too many people out there who are still mourning folks that they've lost decades ago, you know, who they still memorialize. So I don't, I don't think it's a closure situation. I think it's a justice situation. I think it is, was she murdered? Did she disappear voluntarily? Which again, I don't necessarily believe. I just don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. No, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. fit the, the context and the circumstances or, or her, her prior behavior. Oh, and also there's, there's no history of, you know, real like severe drug abuse in the family, no history. I, and I, and these were hard questions to ask. And even for a, for a, for a trained reporter, for a, for a professional journalist, it's hard to ask somebody, does your family have a history of schizophrenia? Does your family have a history of, of, of bipolar, you know, disorder, borderline personality, you know, or whatever, what do they call? I don't know if they, if they changed that from manic depression, you know, is there a history of depression? I had to ask these questions of, of, of Nancy's siblings, nothing. There's no history. There's nobody who, who ended up, you know, in a, um, you know, institutionalized. There's no, there's no creepy uncles. There's an ex-boyfriend, a recently ex-boyfriend, a couple possible alleged potential serial killers who were living and may have been working in the area at the time. Posey's the, the the main one. I mean, I think there's, I think he's also a suspect in another, you know, he might've, he might be a suspect in another murder, another disappearance. So he's got three that he's potentially tied to. Um, if anybody knows more about him or, or feels free, you know, or feels like they want to reach out, I'd be, I'd be happy to, to listen to what you have to say. There's, there's a couple options here that we have in terms of motive, opportunity, facts and circumstances of the case. Again, there's no evidence of a crime that a crime has ever occurred. I just think that that's the most likely of, of all possibilities.
When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.